Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose. Check out our website, AmericanPurpose.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletters, find details of how to register for our forthcoming Zoom events, and read comment and analysis on the most pressing issues of the day. Coming up on the show, Mark Salter on his new book, The Luckiest Man, Life with John McCain. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Richard. So congratulations on the new book. Um, we're speaking the day after the presidential election. Uh, it's probably not your favourite memory of life with John <laughs> McCain. But uh, on this day in 2008, you wrote his concession speech to Barack Obama. Uh, what's, what's it like to be inside the room at a time like this? Um, well, you know, in, in, in our case, uh, we had known for a couple of weeks that uh, he was likely to lose after the uh, uh, real estate bubble burst and Lehman Brothers collapsed and uh, with it, the global credit system got pretty, uh, we, we knew it was uh, it was a bad environment to be running uh, as a, a Republican following a Republican in, in that office and that we were probably going to lose. And uh so it didn't come as a shock, but uh, McCain was a very suspicious guy, uh, sort of the habits of a Navy officer, and uh, he would never want to uh, – we could talk about what he'd want to say in a statement, either a victory speech or a concession statement, but he never wanted me to actually write anything until we had something close to definitive proof um, that the, uh, the contest had gone one way or another. So I, I, you know, we had talked about what he wanted to say in the event that he did lose, which he expected to, and uh, – I couldn't start writing it till about five o'clock, though. So it's, it was just I wasn't, and I have to, I went somewhere by myself and chain smoked for a couple hours while I knocked out a draft. Then took it back to him, and uh, we went over it and made a few changes. But uh, it was, you know, you know, he was a resilient guy, and he was upbeat at the end of the campaign. It was an exhausting thing, a campaign. I think he was looking forward to being freed of it a little bit. And uh, um, that night, he. Uh, he uh, he sent his Secret Service details. Said I, I appreciate a ride home, and then you all go home to your families. And uh, he dismissed them for good. He he should have had a detail for about another two weeks, but uh, he wanted to walk to the local coffee shop with his wife the next morning and get his cappuccino without uh, the encumbrance of being uh, being in a security bubble. I was very struck in reading that section of the book that uh, there, there really was right from the very beginning in thinking about that speech, the sense of the American system, of the way in which politics works, that uh, he was very keen and uh, in, and, in, and came across in your draft, uh, this sense of acknowledging that, that Barack Obama would be his president, would be right. America's president. Right. Well, you know, we knew uh, from encounters late in the campaign with some of his own supporters that there were uh, unfounded questions about the about Senator Obama's uh, patriotism and citizenship. And, he, you know, he wanted to make clear that uh, that was nonsense and he wanted to be gracious in defeat. He thought that's how a person of character comported himself in defeat. And he also wanted to stress, as he did throughout his career, that he felt that uh, Americans had so much more in common than in disagreement and that we had shared responsibilities to the country and to each other. And uh, he wanted to make all that clear to him and how, how privileged it made him feel um, to 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 serve a country that that uh, expected that of its politicians. 
And it's, I mean, it's something that um, Henry Kissinger pointed to in his uh, John McCain's memorial service, this this sense of a code, a sense of honour. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think that, that that really was part of the message that he was trying to impart in that speech and in incidents like the one I think perhaps you were referring to when uh, somebody said that Barack Obama was not an American and he immediately right. interrupted and said, no, yeah. he, he is an American, he's a fine man and, and yeah. I respect him. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, I often say that McCain didn't have so much as a governing philosophy as a code of conduct. And, and, and he did have a code of conduct. And he, by and large, it governed his actions um, throughout all the time I knew him and, and before. Um, you know, it was something, in, you know, partially inherited from his, you know, his family, his military family going back many, many generations, all the way back to the American Revolution. And, uh, his father and grandfather were career naval officers, four-star admirals. Uh, they had a sort of uh, an officer doesn't lie, cheat or steal, or you know, slough off his responsibilities to subordinates. You know that he he embraced. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he you know he was a rebellious kid. Uh, so he at, at his high school and at the naval academy where he went. Uh, you know, he was in, in a lot of trouble and he kind of sort of broke a lot of rules, but he admired their codes of conduct and he made sure he never violated them. And he would re- remark on that very late in his life. You know, when, whenever he'd go back to the Naval Academy or to Episcopal High School, he would say, you're lucky. You, your school has a code of conduct. It's important. And, uh, and he was also inspired by the literature he read. He was a very, very well-read man. Um, you know, both fiction and nonfiction. I mean, he just had a, a, a restless, restless, restless curiosity. And, uh, um, so, you know, he did sort of, you know, he admired Hemingway and there was a sort of what he thought the Hemingway code besides, you know, grace under pressure was, uh, you know, that you, you, uh, you know, that, a, that a, a person of high character sacrifices themselves and causes greater than themselves. And, uh, um, you know, those things all sort of informed his code and his approach to politics. I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things that really comes out of uh, this book, which uh, one of the things I really like about the book is that, yes, this is a biography, but it but it's also a memoir of, of working with John mm-hmm. McCain. And, and you constantly balance this sense of, yes, there is an, an element of entitlement about him because, as you say, he comes from this uh, very distinguished naval family in Arizona. He's able to use the kind of the business connections that come through through his wife's family. And yet on the other side, there is this kind of sense of duty, of code, of honour, of living up to a certain ideal of what it means to be an American and to be a politician. And those, he, it was almost as if his whole life was trying to deal with the tension between those two. Oh, I think very much. But he really believed, you know, I titled the book The Luckiest Man. It, 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 you know, for several reasons. One is he, he considered himself that and up until, I mean, weeks before his death, he was still referring it to it, to himself as the luckiest man you'll ever meet. And uh, he, he did that because he had survived um, you know, several near brushes with death, a, a very difficult imprisonment during the Vietnam War. And you know, uh, political ups and downs, and uh, and uh, but he also, in, in the biggest purpose for the, the biggest reason he called himself the luckiest man was that he 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 thought he had survived the deficiencies of his, the deficiencies of his own character, his own flaws and failings, <clears throat> and he believed he did that by sacrificing and being courageous in the service of others. 
Um, and that was very important to him. He thought you redeemed yourself from from your failings by by serving a cause greater than yourself. And what, whatever that was, the cause of his country or his country's ideals, even more importantly, which he felt quite romantic about, even though, as I hope I've made clear, he was quite a cynic about the world. He was quite a romantic about his causes. Uh, and that's why you know dissidents in countries all over the world revere him and revere his memory. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about that sense of uh, failure and the kind of the difficulties in dealing with it. Some of the most moving parts of the book, which you keep coming back to, are the sense of failure that he felt about what happened to him when he was imprisoned uh, in Vietnam. I mean, we know that he was uh, tortured, really, when he was there. But the fact that he gave a confession really was something that haunted him and that you hint in the book really that he's in almost his entire political career is about repaying what he felt was the kind of debt that he owed to America because of that. Well, I think that he felt a debt to America for allowing him to serve America more than his failure. You know, he, it's, he, he wasn't undone by it. I don't think, you know, it bothered him. It, at times it seemed ludicrous to, to someone like, I never served in a war and, uh, and I know quite a few of his uh, uh, fellow POWs, and uh, they would all, you know, admit, to, you know, you know, you were you resisted to the best of your ability, but you know, everybody has a breaking point, and then you make what are stilted, ridiculous confessions that get taped. I think it was a little bit more personal to him, though, because his father at the time was Sinkpak, Commander in Chief of all U.S. forces in the Pacific, so directly in in in, in his son's chain of command, and. Uh, and he knew his father would hear the recording of that taped confession. Um, he he re remembers. I mean, he was in, almost delirious when when he he made it the recording. But uh, he remembers thinking that his father would hear it, or his father would see a transcript of it, and it, it shamed him. Um, but uh, you know, you would I would I would almost to be honest with you, almost laugh at him when he would tell me that. It's, it's, that's ridiculous. You know. It's, you know, it's no who who would expect you to do more. He volunteered to remain behind and was tortured for it, um, rather than desert his fellow POWs. <laughs> and uh, you know, no no one's going to begrudge the fact that they you know they forced you to make some idiotic you know tape recording. But it did it did bother him. I'm not sure you know it was you know um, a greater um, spur to his conscience than than. Other things were just the, you know whatever he viewed his own his own uh, you know character flaws as um, you know he thought that the, you know you, you as I say you know, I'm repeating myself but that that you 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 got past that you know he used to have this marvelous line that he would almost sort of almost like a mantra uh, you know he would repeat to himself all the time you know fifth from the bottom of my class at the Naval Academy and and the Republican nominee for president unbelievable. He was very, very grateful to the country for, you know, the life he was allowed to leave in service to the country. You know, this big adventurous life for a man of his curiosity. You know, he, you know, he traveled the world over, over many times. He was on first name basis with heads of state and the leaders of human rights movements and uh, political prisoners and uh you know, it's just for a man of his restlessness and his uh, his sense of adventure. It was a wonderful life, and he was grateful for it. But it also allowed him to do something for others, which he felt made up for whatever, as we all have moments of selfishness in our own lives. That more than that more than the the 
confession, I think, was the goad to his conscience. There's a there's a nice story in the book about the serendipity about how you end up working uh, with him, uh, and there's there's uh, has not just professional implications for you, but personal ones too. Yes, I know. It was, uh, so I was working. Uh, um, at the time for Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And she was giving a speech at the Republican National Convention in 1988 in New Orleans for uh, George H.W. Bush's nominating convention. And uh, uh, after the speech, uh, I was serving as a press secretary, and uh, uh, we, we, she agreed to do a bunch of press interviews in the Superdome, this big cavernous arena where the convention was held. And uh, we couldn't find the last one. Well, anyway, so she was getting a little irritable. I got on a walkie-talkie and uh, called the press office and said, send up somebody to get us to this last interview or she's going to go back to the hotel. They did. The volunteer was a, a, a woman named Tori Clark, who was at that time John McCain's press secretary. And uh, she got us to the interview. We, we were talking, kind of hit it off, decided we'd go out and get a beer afterwards. She introduced me to, you know, we were walking down Bourbon Street and she introduced me to a, a bunch of McCain staffers and... Um, one of whom was McCain's scheduler, Diane. And uh, uh, the next night, I, uh, she invited me to watch uh, Bush's acceptance speech from the Arizona delegation right up near the front of the stage and uh, introduced me to John McCain, who said something like, you know, hey, Tori says you're a good writer. Maybe you'll write something for me someday. I talked to him for about 20 seconds, and that was it. Well, uh, that was followed by a couple of, uh, you know, a request for me to write a speech for him. I did a little freelance work back in those days. And uh did about two or three speeches for him. And then he asked me to come and work for him full time. And I did. Uh, long story short, I was hired as a foreign affairs aide. I went on to become his administrative assistant, or, or, which is what we called chiefs of staff back in my day. And uh, and I ended up marrying a scheduler, Diane. So, it's, you know, so when a kid, a college kid asked me what was my career plan, I said, I plan to get lost in the Superdome and let the rest of my life happen. Uh, so it's, it's, as I say, it's a, it's a lovely story in the, in the book. Um, I mean, what what was uh, what was John McCain like to work with? Uh, he was uh, a lot of fun, exhilarating. Um, he was, you know, he he just ran at higher RPMs than everybody else. Um, so you know, your days were long and tiring, but but you know, by the end of the day, you'd be pretty tired. Um, but, you know, during the course of the day, he had so many interests and was involved in so many things. It was just this, you know, you just you, you never got had you never had time to get bored with an issue or something because you're always off to the next thing, you know, and he would run around and, uh, you know, he uh, he, he uh, traveled quite a bit. And I traveled overseas with him. And until I worked for him, I'd done very little travel, you know, but I've been. You know, I've been in Burmese jungles and, you know, it's just, um, we were, you know, back to Vietnam long before we normalized relations with them. And uh, that was a, a great cause of his was to restore normal relations between former adversaries in, you know, uh, in the war he served in. Um, and so, I, I, you know, Vietnam is now quite, uh, quite a modern country. But uh, when we were going there, there wasn't a paved road from the airport into the capital city. Um it was, uh, you know, it was just, uh, it was a, uh, you know, I lived, you know, a life of some a somewhat adventurous life of my own with him, endlessly fascinating, um, you know, uh, uh, campaigns, presidential campaigns are tiring, exhausting things, but they're also, uh, they're also a lot of fun and, uh, and interesting, uh, interesting way to study, uh, st study your fellow country. 
Yeah, yeah, it's one of the it's one of the things that you keep talking about and returning to, and actually that he's very insistent about that sometimes you're urging him, look, don't make these jokes, don't say these things in public because they're host- <laughs> they're a hostage to fortune. And yet, the, one of the things that really comes through in the book is that actually it's that sense of humour, sometimes which is very caustic, that yes. actually is the kind of thing that makes the whole thing tick. Yeah, he's a, uh, you know. Um... I, I'm sure it's not just this country, but other countries. I think voters cry out for authenticity in their in their politicians and their public officials, um, and uh, we don't have enough of it, you know. And I think that's uh, you know at times that's that's at the heart of a lot of our our difficulties. But uh, he was authentic. He was himself. He couldn't. He couldn't. He, if he tried to straightjacket him, it was just a failure. And uh, people sense that. But there's a price to pay for it, you know. <laughs> You know, they're going to insist on being themselves every once in a while. They're going to get in trouble. He loved nothing so much as getting a laugh. You know, he just uh, is every town hall meeting began with about a 10 or 15 minute stand up routine, kind of a cat skills, borscht belt thing of recycled jokes he'd been using for years and and a couple, three new ones he'd picked up on the trail. But, uh, uh, you know, it was uh, mostly it was fun. You know, mostly, you know, you'd hear a joke for the hundredth time. You'd be surprised if you find yourself laughing at it again. But uh, uh, sometimes he'd say something that got him into trouble. And uh, uh, whether it was a, a attempt at a joke or, or a smart ass answer of some kind to a reporter that got us, uh, got us a little bad, bad press attention. Um, but, you know, that's the, the price you pay for trying to be real, I guess. And he had to be really tough as well. I mean, rereading the, the stories around that first presidential run uh, when, when he was going for the Republican nomination against George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, just the sheer brutality of politics. I mean, that do, do you think that even came as a shock to him, somebody who was as experienced in politics as he was? Um, I don't know if it came as a shock to him. I mean, at the, at the time, it was, uh, it was the South Carolina portion of it was rather unpleasant or got unpleasant. But uh, he looked back on that campaign in 2000, I think, as his favorite campaign, even though he did not win the nomination uh, as he did in 2008. Um, but it was his favorite because, uh, you know, he, he, we really we, he went into it without expectations of winning. And with a, a deep desire to try to just be himself to the extent that's possible in a presidential campaign, it's hard. But he was, and people really did thrill to it. And you know, he had, you know, he was uh, he was drawing these huge crowds, and uh, we uh, confounded all expectations in New Hampshire and won it by almost twenty points. And uh, and you know, he was not the establishment's choice, and he was campaigning ca- counterintuitively uh, for a Republican on campaign. F- campaign finance reform is sort of the gateway reform to doing other making other changes in government and uh, uh, you know uh, it wasn't a popular position among the party establishment and uh, and they gathered themselves uh, uh, into a kind of a resistance wall in South Carolina and it got a little a little heated and a little heavy and a little negative. Um, but, you know, that, that happens. It ain't beanbag, as I say. I mean, it's interesting that you say that that was his favourite campaign. Do you think it was also when he was absolutely at the top of his game that by the time you get to 2008, for reasons that are not always to do with mm-hmm. him, there's a mm-hmm. kind of a sense that perhaps he's the wrong man for that particular campaign, post-Iraq, dealing with the uh, the kind of the global recession, 
uh, dealing with a, a kind of a right. candidate who brought something very new like Barack Obama. Yeah, I don't know if it was peak of it. I mean, yes, you're right. And, and it, he was more suited to the time to 2000 than he was to 2008, although he felt very strongly about the surge in Iraq and he used that campaign thinking he was going to lose that campaign, that that those primaries, nominating primaries too. He thought he would use his uh, his uh, his candidacy to defend the surge, promote the surge in Iraq. He thought it was um you know, he thought it was important that, that, that we not lose in Iraq and uh, he was going to uh, suffer, you know, defeats if he had to, to, to try to drive that point home. Um, having said that, I think the peak of his career, you'd have to say, was the years between the two campaigns where he was his most productive as a legislator. I mean, we were involved in so many issues. I just, when I was writing the book, I mean, just looking back on it, I thought, my God, I don't you don't usually you in a given Congress you pick one or two things you want to get done you know, but he 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 would have a dozen things you know he was involved in and uh, um, you know he became very effective. Be, two, what two thousand campaign made him was a national politician. He had national name ID and a and a big following, and uh, and that gave him more influence because he could have an outside game as well as the inside legislative game, and he used it. He used it to get stuff he wanted you know he thought important done. I mean, it's, it, the question once we get to two thousand and eight that, of course, everybody always turns to is the is the question of Sarah Palin, who seems so different in terms of experience and outlook on the world to John McCain. I mean, you make it clear in the book that uh, you were sceptical about the uh, about her. Uh, as the vice presidential candidate, but why ultimately do you think that he picked he picked her? Particularly as you make it clear that he didn't really know her. Well, he didn't. He wanted to pick Joe Lieberman, who, for your listeners, if they don't know, was at the time a former Democrat who who never became a Republican. He was also pro-choice, um, which you know made it very difficult to put him on the national ticket of a party that's decidedly pro-life. Um, and uh, he, the, he and Lieberman were good friends, the colleagues in the Senate, traveled the world together, saw the world in similar ways. Um, uh, and uh, he wanted to, wanted to serve with somebody that he respected and, and liked and knew. We, meaning his aides, prevailed uh, on him not to pick Lieberman because the you know the, the party would have uh, the it would have been there been an uproar at the convention there would have been a challenge to the nomination on the floor we would have prevailed but it would have been a bloody fight and we would have limped out of uh, the Twin Cities where the convention was uh, with a, with a divided party and in an environment that was already you know the famous measuring stick in the United States where the political climate is right track wrong track and I think wrong track was about eighty eight then this is you know. Just uh, you know, you know, after the collapse, you know, of the globe, you know, after Lehman Brothers went down and the real estate bubble burst, but uh, sick people, voters sick of the war, Katrina in two thousand and six, it was just a terrible, terrible environment to be a Republican running to succeed a Republican. So we thought, well, that would be crippling, um, and we convinced him not to. He was very unhappy about it, and I'd be honest with you, he kind of sulked for a few days about it, and. Uh, we were pushing him to make another decision. A, a couple of guys had been sort of intrigued by Sarah Palin on the cam campaign, and uh, one of them had a business in Alaska, and it, you know he had kind of made a little bit of a study of her and thought, uh, you know, she was not pitched to McCain as a, 
sort of a precursor Tea Party type, um, um, but was pitched to him as a reformer who took on a, a Republican establishment that had some ethical issues and beat it and took on the oil companies and beat them, you know, for, to the benefit of, for the benefit of her constituents in Alaska. He didn't really know her. Um, he had met her once, I think, but didn't really know her very well. But, uh, you know, she was uh, asked to, to very late in the game. Um, she had been on a big sort of public document vetting list for of potential vice presidents, but hadn't been a, a shortlist contender. And uh, so uh, uh, I and uh, Steve Schmidt, another uh, senior advisor to the senator, met with her in Flagstaff, Arizona, and spent a long night sort of quizzing her on issues. And um, and then uh, we had lawyers on the phone, and they went through a lot of ethical questions. And um, uh, we uh, brought her down to meet the senator. Uh, they had a good talk for about an hour he kind of liked her she's got a she's very charming but she's also got natural retail political talents that are really quite impressive you know it's uh they're they even a skeptic like like i was uh was impressed by them and uh um you know he he decided uh, we then debated the choice i had uh, recommended another person and uh and uh, this other fellow who had recommended her, and we sort of went back and forth on the pros and cons, and he made a decision to to go ahead and put her on with, with the hope of two things. To, we, we needed to get a piece of the change message. It was definitely, a, as I said, a, wrong, a terrible environment. It was a change election. Barack Obama personified change. Um, we had to get a piece of that message, and we thought, well, there were disappointed Hillary voters, Hillary Clinton voters, um, who might be attracted to the idea that McCain put a woman on the ticket, but also she had this reform credentials that we could use to sort of stress that McCain had been a reformer too. And we, we were committed to changing government, but in, in, in the, in the right ways or however we constructed the argument. But, uh, um, you know, my my concern was, and other people's concern at the time was, that he would do uh, uh, damage to the obviously damage his experience argument that we were making against Obama that McCain had much more experience for the job of president than than the very new senator Barack Obama did, and also a little uh, I thought might do his reputation a little harm, but he took the risk. He was a risk taker, and he took the risk. Um, she wasn't ready, and that became apparent uh, eventually. Um, you know, it, and it shouldn't have surprised us. She's a, a perfectly fine person. She, you know, there's no experience quite like running for president or vice president, being on a national ticket. You're drinking from a fire hose every day, and the amount of attention you get is is just uh, astonishing. Even, you know, it even shocked me in 2008 when he won the nomination, how much more intense it was than it had been, you know, than the, you know, really what I thought was quite intense attention he got in 2000 as the chief rival to George W. Bush. I mean, I, I, I suppose the, I mean, his critics have said that the, the problem with that nomination was that it opened the door to a kind of populist politics within the Republican yeah. Party that really stood for everything that John McCain didn't. Yeah, well, that yeah, that I don't think it opened the door to it so much as you know, uh, you know, part part of a trend that was beginning long before that campaign, and that you know, sort of blew up two years later in two thousand and ten, the Tea Party election, and and reached its sad culmination, I think, with the election of Donald Trump. Um, 
you know, she's a part of that flow. There's no doubt about it. But I, it would have occurred without her. I'm, I'm quite convinced of it. Um, there is a there's something going on here and a divide between rural and urban America and suburban America. And uh, 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 we've got to figure it out in this country. Uh, we've lost the ability to agree on the same set of facts, to uh, communicate with each other, to even respect each other, to, to view each other with anything other than resentment. And uh, uh, that was, uh, we've got, the th- what's brought us to that point in, in our history is uh, so so much bigger than, than Sarah Palin. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, you make the point in the book that after 2008, because he still considered himself to be the leader of the Republican Party, uh, that he kind of becomes a more partisan figure or continues to be a more a partisan uh, figure in that immediate period uh, after the election. But it seems to me that once Donald Trump kind of arrives back on the scene, um, that John McCain takes on that kind of sense of being a national figure, that yeah. in many ways he goes back to the, the earlier reputation uh, that he had, which I suppose helps to explain uh, why there was a kind of a universal bipartisan uh, sense of, of loss when he died. Yeah. Yeah, I think the first couple of years, you know, there was a little bit of sense that he was the captain of the team and, uh, you know, um, went out there and... Uh, you know, tried to lead the party. It was, it was more partisan than he had been in years past. I think you know he 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 remained a sharp critic of many uh, Obama administration policies, but but on on the merits, you know, on you know he disagreed with them strongly about uh, Syria and about uh, what he figured what he considered was their insufficient support for the Ukrainian government after it was invaded by the by the Russians. Um, uh, and and other issues, he was you know those those were just they just had strong disagreements. He felt passionately about it. Um, but the first couple of years, I think there were you know a couple of his votes on their nominees, and uh, I think I talked about the don't ask, don't tell issue, which I found you know just not contrary to you know uh, what what I thought he would have done in previous years. Um, yeah, I, I do think there was a sense of you know sort of politics as a team sport, and uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't as true to himself as he was uh, before and after that. Uh, but he, you know, he did a quite, a quite a number of things with the Obama administration, including, you know, his third attempt at getting a big immigration reform bill through. So, yeah, you know, even before Trump, you know, there was plenty of evidence of John McCain who, who did view legislating as problem solving that required, the, were required buy-in from, from your, your, your uh, political opposites. Um, that's all, that was, he viewed the Senate as a, as an arena for that kind of you know uh, bipartisanship or at least compromises to get you know make a little progress on the problems of your time. That 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 sort of governed his behavior no matter who was in the White House. I mean, it's interesting that I mean you make it clear that although the relationship with then President Obama sometimes could be quite testy, nevertheless mm-hmm. there did genuinely seem to be a, a, a level of of not just respect but also you know they they seem to like each other on occasion. Uh, that was never the case with President Trump. I sense no, no, no. He he admired and respected President Obama. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he he would. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the book where uh, he was very, very worked up about Syria. And I mean, he knew people who were dying there and um, um, he just felt passionately about about what was happening there. 
And I, uh, you know, Obama had him come over to the Oval Office and shut the door. And as McCain described it, we yelled at each other for a half hour. But I felt I felt better about it when I left. So, it's, you know, uh, with with Trump, I mean, he had he had, you know he had uh, he didn't really have a history with Trump. He had known Trump as a kind of a t- tabloid clown, and and really didn't 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 really revise his opinion of him. You know, when Trump entered politics, and um. um um, you know, and I think he, you know, he was just appalled by Trump's affinity for 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 autocrats. You know, his his apparent yearning to be, you know, Putin's best friend or Erdogan's pal or Kim Jong Il's pen pal, Kim Kim Jong Un's pen pal. Um, you know, it's just uh, uh, he was he was disgusted by it and said so as in the stronger terms as possible. And he also, he just didn't think Trump shared or understood even, or co- comprehended what American ideals were and the importance of advancing those ideals in the world, um, that they defined us and uh, that that was the essence of our exceptionalism, not our wealth or, or geography or whatever tribes are ascendant in this country at the moment, that it was the American American ideals, the beliefs in freedom and equal justice and the dignity of all mankind that that made us special. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he didn't think Trump could even comprehend what those things meant. So, yeah, he was quite concerned about him. I mean, you say um, towards the end of the book that uh, you'd worked for 20 years for uh, John McCain. um, And then in the kind of after 2008, you kind of mainly worked with him kind of on books and this kind of thing. So, But you were involved in politics for a long time. You were involved with John McCain for a long time. When you kind of look now at kind of politics and survey the scene, do you still think that there's a place in American politics for a figure like John McCain? And what would his legacy be today? Yeah, I think there definitely is. I think there's a crying need for one. Um, we've gotten ourselves in quite an impasse here, as I discussed earlier. And, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it, I never understand why politicians don't have the guts to be themselves sometimes. They must be insecure people. Um, he did, but it does take guts and you got to take your lumps over it. Um, I think, you know, I think we're waiting for some of the people may perceive Donald Trump for all his pathologies um, as, you know, authentically dishonest and corrupt, but authentically so. Um, I don't know. You know, maybe that's part of his appeal to the people. It's lost on me, but uh, it's not lost on half the country. Um, uh, his lasting legacy is, I think, that he did st- he, he just I'll go back to the earlier themes that he did stand <laughs> You know, he, he showed courage and he sacrificed uh, in service to others. And, and he, he didn't just talk about loving his country. He showed you that he loved this country and what it meant to him. And I think that's why people were so affected at the end of his life and at his funeral. That it was so obvious what it meant to him and his, his last public statements and his memorial services uh, were all a, a t- testimonial to that. And I think that's um, he, he was asked by Jake Tapper, the CNN uh, uh, reporter, um, what he wanted, what he wanted uh, his tombstone to read. And he just said, John McCain, he's, I serve my country honorably. And uh, I think that's his legacy.
He, 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 he sought no other. So the book is The Luckiest Man, Life with John McCain. It's written by my guest, Mark Salter, and published by Simon & Schuster, price $35. Uh, it really is a terrific read, a wonderful blend of the personal and the political. Uh, but for now, Mark, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demi Marusik. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying have a great week. Mm-hmm.